Today we are beginning. Today we are beginning a new sermon series uh, from John's Revelation. You can find that beginning today in our, our ESVs, page one thousand twenty-eight. We are going to be studying together for the remainder of the summer, and it should take us just to the end. Uh, the seven letters that are written in chapters two and three to the seven churches. Uh, in Ephesus and Smyrna and all the rest. Um, but today, uh, it's a bit of a preparatory uh, message as we look to the vision of John, which is the beginning of these letters. Normally, as we uh, come to God's Word and, and we hear it, and we come to the preaching and the hearing of God's Word, it is my conviction that normally we begin with God's Word before I give too many other words of my own to introduce it. Uh, and uh, normally we like to do that and then get into uh, all of uh, my secondary comments, secondary at best. But as we begin a new sermon series, it's a good time to take a moment and just orient ourselves to what we're going to hear. And more than that, why we're studying this. Why Revelation? Why the letters to the seven churches for the summer? Well, there are a few answers to that. One is that in the Revelation, we find a blessing. And uh, it says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, and blessed are those who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so uh, we shouldn't be embarrassed to say we're seeking a blessing as we read the Revelation this summer. That's a good thing, to be uh, blessed as those who hear and do God's Word. But secondarily, uh, we're also reading Revelation today because it speaks to some of the questions that we as a congregation have already been asking. You're aware that for the last 18 months, we have been thinking and, and asking and, and seeking whether or not the Lord would have us uh, in our own building, whether that's even something that we should be thinking about and talking about. We've been dealing with that, and we've got a facilities committee, and it's sort of in the background there somewhere. And about a month ago, we had a congregational meeting where we talked about some of these issues, and what we came away with from that meeting, if you were there, was... This idea that what we really need is a much more foundational vision for what the church is supposed to be and do. Buildings are nice. Real estate's potentially helpful, I suppose. Uh, but not if we don't know what the church is supposed to be doing. We need something more foundational. And so we are turning uh, to the book of Revelation to get a vision, in a sense, for what a healthy, faithful ministry should look like, and, and so that we would not have a vision that comes from our own fancies and something that we would want for ourselves just because we want to feel good about wherever we're going. We want to hear God's word for us. With that in mind, the elders have asked that we would study these letters for the summer. And so you need to know that right at the beginning, that we are reading Revelation with an agenda this summer. There is an ulterior motive. The ulterior motive is not to point us in the direction of a building or not a building. The ulterior motive is to get God's wisdom for what our church is supposed to be and do. And that's okay. Because when you come to a decision point in your own life, hopefully you do the same thing that we're doing now. You pray to the Lord, oh Lord, give me wisdom. And then you open his word and you ransack his wisdom for discernment and what you ought to be doing. So that's what we're doing this summer. We want to know where the Lord would have us and how we can be faithful to him. And we're seeking God's wisdom for some of the questions that we're already asking. But thirdly, and I think much more foundationally, we're going to be reading Revelation this summer because we want to know more about Jesus. A wise theologian once said, you cannot think deeply about Jesus without also thinking about his church. 
The reverse ought to be true. You can't think very far, and it ought to be impossible to think very much about the church without also thinking about Jesus. And so we're turning to Revelation because Revelation is ultimately a book about Jesus. It's about his church. It's about his victory. It's about uh, his mission and his power and his glory, and that is what God's people need more than anything. So if we want to know what are we doing in Revelation for the summer, we're learning about Jesus, and we're learning about what he calls his church to be and do. So with that in mind, in the background, let's turn now to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to be studying today verses 9 through 20, this vision of the Son of Man. And before we read God's word, let us go to him in prayer. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, you who have inspired your word and given it to us for our learning, we pray that you would grant that we would hear now and read and mark and learn and inwardly digest so that we would hold fast to the true word of life in Jesus Christ. O build us up by your spirit as we read your word for the glory of your name, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. This Proverbs chapter 29 uh, verse 18 that tells us that where there is no vision, the people perish. That does not mean, as some church growth gurus would like you to think, that the greatest need of a congregation is some beautiful, polished vision statement that looks good on the back of a t-shirt. That's not the greatest need. That's not the vision that we're talking about here. What God's people need is a prophetic vision. God's revelation, His word to them, informing and transforming our understanding of our life and our mission in the world. 
hear the rest of that verse, which is very often not cited when we talk about vision planning and vision statements. Where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. We could translate that maybe, blessed is he. There is a blessing in hearing God's vision and his restorative word for us. There's a blessing in submitting to God's vision for what his people are to be. There's something protective about that vision. It keeps us from perishing when we hear it and when we obey it. And so we find John exiled on the island of Patmos, the last living apostle of the Lord. And what does he need more than anything? As he's faced with the burden of encouraging the saints, who now close to the end of the first century are enduring more and more persecution under the Roman Empire, what does he need more than anything but a revelation of God? He needs God's prophetic vision, His prophetic word. He needs a glimpse of God's plan and purpose for His church, and that's what He receives. In startling fashion, that's what He receives. This passage that we read is about a vision, but it's also about a commission. Take a look, verses 11 and 19. Twice, John is encouraged to write what you see in verse 11. And again, in 19, write, therefore, the things you have seen. This is a vision, but it's not just for John. This is a vision that is to be our vision as well. Write these things to the churches. And if this vision is going to become our vision, there are a few things in this passage and in this vision we need to see clearly. The first thing that we need to see is our place in the world. We need to see our place in the world. You don't have to look very far to find that. It shows up in verse 9. John identifies himself with the church, and he says, I am your brother and your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now, that last phrase sounds familiar, doesn't it? In Jesus? Isn't that how the New Testament so often speaks of wonderful things, glorious things, blessings that we find? That's how the New Testament summarizes our salvation, It is in Jesus, and if we are united to Him by faith, if we abide in Him and He abides in us, all the blessings of redemption are ours in Him. This is what it says in Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, in Him We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. We know what it means to be in Jesus. It means blessing and salvation. But John says there are a few more things in Jesus that you need to be aware of. There's tribulation in Jesus. There's a kingdom in Jesus. And there is patient endurance in Him. We could spend a long time trying to parse out the... the, relationship between those three, but I think it's helpful if we start at the end and work backwards to see how they're connected. Why do we need perseverance where we are in the world? Well, because we are members of his kingdom, and members of Christ's kingdom in this world that wants nothing to do with his kingdom rule will face tribulation. He's working backwards from where we begin in the world. Tribulation, why? Because we're part of the kingdom, and what do we need? We need perseverance. He says all of these things are ours In Jesus. This is our place in the world. Believers in Christ are citizens of God's heavenly kingdom, and we endure tribulation because of it. 
Now, this week, on the 4th of July, we're going to celebrate Independence Day. Perhaps, like our family, you're going to go and, and see a parade. You're going to watch some of the Campellis run in a 5K that comes before the parade, and you're going to see them all sweaty on a hot day. Perhaps you'll go home later after that parade and you'll grill your hamburgers and you'll fly your flag and you'll praise the Lord for the freedoms that we enjoy and none of your neighbors are going to think that you're crazy for doing anything like that. That's what we do. We celebrate our independence as a nation. But not too long ago, just a couple hundred years, the people who lived here in, in what were then the colonies were divided. They were divided between the patriots and the loyalists. Those who yearn for independence, they wanted nothing more than to be free from the tyranny of England. And then there were the loyalists who wanted to maintain their status as subjects of the crown, and there was a division. In the 1770s, those who were loyal to the king of England were persecuted because of their allegiances. They were covered in hot tar and feathers. They were dragged throughout the city. They were tied up in the stocks. They had their possessions stolen, they were ridiculed, and they were mocked, they were subject to mob violence. I'm, I'm no loyalist to the crown of England, but I am a loyalist to the kingdom of Christ, and we need to be aware that that same thing happens. That if you are a loyalist to Christ, if you are a member of His kingdom, you ought to be prepared to face tribulation because of your allegiances. This is what Jesus told us. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And in the world, you will have tribulation. This is where we stand in the world. This is what we face as members of Christ's kingdom. It's tribulation. And that is why we need patient endurance. Now, when you hear that phrase, patient endurance, you need to make sure that somewhere in your mind, you don't have this idea of a quiet repose. This is not passive waiting. This is not holding your breath and waiting for the tribulation to be done and over with. There is something, uh, perhaps perseverance is, is a better translation because that's an active word to most of us. It, it speaks of striving and pressing and, and reaching for the goal. This is what we need in this world as we face tribulation. We need perseverance and, and an active striving. I had the chance to speak with Peter Campelli after he returned from Marine boot camp. Maybe some of you did as well. He told me about some of the trials that he faced in his training. The last one, of course, is what the Marines call the crucible. The crucible is two and a half days long, 54 hours, a training exercise where all of the recruits march more than 48 miles. And the last leg of that was a 12-mile fast march with 80 pounds of gear on his back. And it was endurance. He needed patience, but there was nothing passive about it. When John speaks here of patient endurance, he's talking about grit and determination. He's talking about striving against the spirit of the age and, and the inertia of our own desires for ease and comfort as we live as citizens of another kingdom. He's speaking here of daily cross-bearing and daily mortification of our sin by the power of the Spirit. He's speaking of daily surrendering our illusion that this life is able to offer us all that really exists and all that really matters. And there's a struggle there for us to do that. That's what we find in Jesus. That's our place in the world. We are citizens in His kingdom and we face tribulation and there's a call to perseverance. 
I wonder if any of you have felt the pressure of this perseverance lately. I realize we, we prayed for our nation today when we normally pray for persecuted nations and, and quote-unquote persecution in America doesn't look anything like it looks in some places in the world. And, and that's true, but just because it doesn't look the same doesn't mean that there is no tribulation and there is no press of the world upon us and there is no press of our own sins fighting against. There is no tribulation that we face. It's still there. Because our tribulation looks different, maybe it just means that we're not as aware of it. Maybe it just means that we're not as on our guard against it as we ought to be. It comes in subtle ways. It comes in the opinions of others that we would rather not have leveled against us. It comes the way others speak and murmur and, and think less of us. It comes maybe in more overt ways. I wonder if any of you have felt that pressure. This is our place in the world, and we need to see that. We face tribulation as members of Christ's kingdom. We need perseverance. And the second thing we see in this passage is our king in his glory. Our place in the world and our king in his glory. I'm almost, almost hesitant to use the word glory. I think if I could come up with any better word to describe this vision, I would try. But there's no better way to put it. It's glorious what John sees, and that word even pales to explain what it was that he saw. But the Lord showed up to John, and he revealed himself in a breathtaking, knee-shaking, earth-shattering glory. The reason that I'm hesitant to use that word glory is that it's another one of those Bible words that we use so often, and I don't think we really get the gravity of what it means. We could get pretty far in, in trying to understand it. We could, we could define glory. We could go back to the original languages. We could understand that glory means something like heaviness, weightiness, the, the impressiveness of a person's character. There's a glory in there, and that, that's okay. It doesn't scratch the surface of what John experienced. We could try to analyze this glory. We could break it apart, but that's dangerous because when we do that, we feel like we're the ones putting this glory under a microscope and, and we've somehow domesticated and we're the ones who get to determine what this glory means and how we apply it, and that's not what glory is meant to do. Not to be analyzed, not to be broken apart into its constituent pieces. We're, we can't domesticate the glory that he saw. This is not what we do with it. The sum total of what John saw didn't leave him with a better sense of knowledge or more understanding. It left him undone. Look at where John is in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's the proper response to glory. Not analysis. Not definitions. Undone. Unmanned. This is what happens when you experience Glory, And that's what we need to know about this glory that he saw. It's not the sort of thing that we experience, uh, explain so much as it is something that we have to experience for ourselves. Not so much something that we analyze so much as it is something that overwhelms us. Glory produces in us that sense of smallness when we are in the presence of a glorious person. And the more glorious they are, the smaller we feel. That's maybe as close as we can get to a good definition of, of what glory is, is what it produces in us. This is why uh, years ago, cathedrals in Europe were built with these enormous high vaulted ceilings so that you would walk in and your eyes would be drawn, involuntarily drawn up, up, and you would feel small 
and your voice would still and your heart would turn quiet. It was just a small way, just, a, just an earthbound, finite way to try and impress upon the worshiper who entered in those doors something of the glory that John felt. In the presence of the Lord, when you find yourself feeling small and, and insignificant. But the truth is that cathedrals can't do justice to this glory. Sermons can't, can't do justice to this glory. Finite praise and faltering lips and all the words of the human tongue cannot do justice to this glory. But what we find in this vision is the upward pull of the eyes of our hearts to say, I want to experience that. Oh, it's worth everything to lay at his feet and to be undone. Isn't that what we find here? Doesn't it pull us up to say, I wish I could feel that small before King Jesus? Let's not domesticate him, folks. We so often do that. We think of Jesus as our friend, and he is. He tells us, he calls us friends. We think, we go into the bookstores and we see those books that say, Jesus is your life coach. He's not your life coach. He's the glorious Lord of creation. We speak sometimes, you hear, you hear folks saying, you know, when I get to heaven, I have a few questions that I'm going to ask. No, you won't. When you see him, when you experience it, you will be flat on your face, overcome by his glory, undone and unmanned, and it'll be a wonderful thing. That's what this glory is. That's what this vision is all about. Do you notice the juxtaposition? He moves so quickly from the earthly realities of exile. Here I am on the island of Patmos, just this little place in the Mediterranean. And I'm in the spirit. And suddenly Jesus is there and I fell at his feet. You see, it's this glory that makes sense of John's tribulation. Is the only thing that could make sense of all the perseverance that our Christian lives call for. Is the fact that we have a king who is so glorious that our whole puny existence is worth knowing him and seeing him and falling at his feet. Dear friends, it also ought to be a reminder that all of those who are in Jesus now will be with Jesus someday. This is what we will see. This is what we will experience when we are ushered into his presence. And then, I think really, only then will we be able, really from the heart, to understand what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, that the sufferings of this life are not even worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. I read that, and that is a, a wonderful balm for my soul very often. I love Romans 8. I hope that you do as well. But it's a struggle to believe those words from our finite existence where our sufferings loom so large and our Savior seems small by comparison. But when we see his glory, we'll be the ones who are small and our sufferings will fade and then we will know. And this is the reason that we hold on. This is how we make sense of our tribulation. This is why we persevere because Christ is our glorious King. Now, we're Presbyterian, and if we don't analyze this just a little bit, you're going to dock my pay or something. I don't know what will happen, 
You'll probably be looking for a different pastor. We, we need to analyze this, and I want to analyze this a little bit, but, but don't get the idea that what we're doing is domesticating this glory. We're, we're just trying to see more of it, like the Puritans. We're going to take the diamond, and we're going to spin it just a little bit, and we're going to see the facets gleaming and, and glinting back at us. And we're not going to go through everything. We're not going to parse out each piece. If you look at the letters that are going to be coming in the weeks to follow, you'll see that a lot of these show up again in the letters. Chapter 2, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. To Smyrna, the words of the first and the last, he who died and came to life, and so on and so forth. My goal, hopefully, is that we'll look at these each in pieces. They relate to the church. So we're not going to look at everything, but there are two aspects of Christ's glory that I want to highlight for us today. The first is the glory of his kingship. John describes him, he says, one like the Son of Man. And again, that's familiar language. At least it ought to be familiar. This was Jesus' favorite designation for himself in the Gospels. When he would talk to others, he would describe himself as the Son of Man. And for a very long time in the church, the common consensus was that this was humility language. Here is Jesus, here's the one who didn't think uh, equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and he took upon our nature. He, uh, he was common with our infirmities and he knew our frame and he was humble enough to call himself the son of man, but that's not actually what this is all about. When Jesus says he's the son of man, it's not about humility, it's about glory. If you were reading John's revelation on a web page, somewhere, that little phrase, the Son of Man, would be in blue font, and there'd be an underline letting you know that you could click on it, and it would take you somewhere else where you could find some more information. And if you clicked on it, it would take you to Daniel chapter 7. You'd see another heavenly vision. And here's what Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What is this son of man all about? He's about dominion and glory and a kingdom that shall not pass away. He has no rival. He has no parallel. He has no peer. He is the glorious, uncontested Lord of lords. That's who this Jesus is. He is our King in His glory. And then there's another link. It's in verse 14. It says that the hairs of His head were white like wool, as white as snow. And you click on it and you find yourself uh, back in Daniel chapter 7, the same vision all over again. Except this time you're not looking at the Son of Man. You're looking at the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days who is seated upon his throne in judgment and 10,000 times 10,000 serve him and, and fire issues from the throne and it says of the Ancient of Days that his clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. And isn't it strange that now in the New Testament era, facing persecution, John should speak of Jesus. One who came and lived and, and walked among him and was crucified by the Romans and was resurrected and raised again. Isn't it strange that he would use language of the Father, the Ancient of Days, hair white with, like wool? Isn't it strange that he would use language of the Father to describe the Son? Well, not if you know his glory. Not if you know that he is the king of creation because he's the one who created it. 
Not if you know that the firstborn from the dead is the firstborn over all things. And He holds all things in the palm of His hand. And so Christ is glorious in His kingship. He's also glorious in His judgment. Two more descriptors. One in verse 14. His eyes were like a flame of fire. One in verse 16. From His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Those seem like very different pictures. A flame and a sword. But they have a common theme. And it is the fact that Jesus is the one who divides and devours iniquity. He is the perfect judge who comes and His eyes are like a refiner's fire. And they seek out and they burn up the dross of the earth. This is God language again. This exalted Christology and revelation. Our God is a consuming fire and from His eyes come a flame of fire. And He consumes the dross of sin that remains in His people. He consumes those wicked ones who will not bow the knee to His glory. And Christ the Lord sees with perfect clarity the difference between those two. He sees the sin that we think we can hide from everybody else. He sees the sin that is still yet even unknown to ourselves. He sees it all and He knows where to refine. And He knows where to purge. And then with the sword of His mouth, He wages war against falsehood. Jesus is the judge who speaks and no one can turn back. He's the one who declares what is to be from the beginning to the end. He is the one whose word is sharper than a double-edged sword and who is able to divide and conquer those who oppress and blaspheme and those who deny the power of the living God. This is a picture of judgment. In fact, these same two pictures, the flame and the sword, show up again in Revelation in chapter 19. It says there in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11, Then I saw the heavens opened, and behold, a white horse, The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Christ the Lord is glorious in his judgment. Isn't that what he said when he was with the disciples? And again, it is this overwhelming picture that we cannot domesticate this Jesus. He says, the Father has committed all judgment into my hand. And when I come back, For those who languish in the tribulation that comes against the citizens of my kingdom, I'm coming back with eyes like a flame of fire, and I'm coming back with a sharp two-edged sword to make war with the nations, to put asunder those who oppress and wrong and harm my people. And he makes sense of our tribulation by his glory. And this is the vision that we need to have before us. To see His face is to make sense of our afflictions, and to experience His presence is to have all of our endurance answered. Now, there is one last thing that we need to see before we leave this vision. We've seen our place in the world, considered a little bit our King in His glory, but consider also our priest in His temple. 
Notice at the end of John's vision in verse 20, he ends with an explanation. But none of the things that are explained are maybe the things that we would want to have explained. What about these feet? What about this voice? What about all of these other aspects of who Christ is and his glory? And we want to know more of him, and he doesn't tell us. He leaves us to to sleuth all of those out of the New Testament or to find parallels somewhere else. And down to this day, people uh, debate what they might mean and how they ought to be applied. And we're, we're left in this situation where we can only experience this glory and wait for it to be revealed. But he does tell us what some of these things are. He tells us about the lampstands and about the stars. He says in verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars... You saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so he draws a a direct parallel, a, a direct reference. Here's what you really need to know. Some of the aspects of my glory will continue to baffle you, but you do need to know that I am the one who walks among my people, who holds them in the palm of my hand. We're told uh, these are the churches, the lampstands, and the the spiritual forces at work to protect the churches. God's ministering angels sent out by Jesus and serving Jesus. And he commands them a second time to write down what he's seen, and he he puts a special emphasis on the symbols of the churches. And then as you go back to the beginning of this vision, do you notice that the very first thing John sees is not really a who, but a where? Where? He turned to see this voice, and the first thing he sees is not a voice, but he saw those lampstands, the symbols of the churches. And he says, in the midst of the lampstands, that's where Jesus was, in the presence of the churches. And it seems the way that the vision is presented, that where Jesus is, is just as important as who Jesus is. And that shouldn't surprise us, because through the whole book of Revelation, John's burden has been to meet Christians who are facing persecution and tribulation. His point is to meet them with the comfort of the word of Jesus and who he is for his people. And true comfort will come to us only as it came to John, when he draws near to us, when he puts his hand upon us, when we are undone either by our sin or our tribulation in the world, when we fall before his seed and re- before his feet and recognize his glory and he comes near and he says do not fear I am with you the comfort we receive from this vision is is the comfort of knowing that Jesus is near to us that he our great king and our living Lord and our great high priest is present with his people you notice that that is what John tells us in the beginning he says I saw him in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And that's a temple garment. That's something like what the priest would wear in Exodus. Or in Leviticus, when he enters into the holy place with the blood of the sacrifice to make atonement, that's a temple garment. Or it's something like what the priest would wear as he goes in to tend the lampstands that stood before the presence of the Lord, to trim the wicks and to fill them with oil to see that they are kept burning. You get the picture, don't you? Jesus is our priest, but he's not just some glorious priest who is aloof in heaven, and maybe someday you'll see him. Jesus is the great high priest who is in his temple now, in his people. 
and among us and with us, and he tends to us. That's where our perseverance comes from. Sometimes we think of our own lives and we think, I, I, can't, I can't hold on any longer. The struggle of sin, the, the press of, of my neighbors, the, the press of the society, I, it's time, I just want to give it all up. Can, can I give up yet? Can I, can I stop? Can I wait and just get off the train? I'll, I'll get off somewhere else. We find that Christ is the one who is there with his people, making sure that our light still shines, making sure that we continue. That's the other way to read that statement we began with in verse 9. What did he say? He said, I am your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. What do we find in Jesus? We find patient endurance. That's where our perseverance comes from. Because he's always present with his people. He is the ever-present and ever-living Lord and priest, and he speaks comfort to us, and he speaks to us by his word, and he and he binds up our doubting, broken hearts. And he says, I'm with you. And you're my children, and you're a part of my kingdom. And one day, all of your faith will become sight. But in the meantime, I'm still your priest, and I'm still here, and, and your perseverance comes from me. And this is the blessing of John's vision for the churches. It's a vision that reminds us of where we stand in the eyes of the world, but much more is a reminder of the one who stands with us. Now let's go to the Lord in prayer. O Lord, our gracious God and King, O glorious one, we thank you that you are the one who has given yourself, who have, has died, and now, behold, you live forevermore. Bind up our hearts and meet us in our doubts and teach us by your word. Lay us bare by that word which is sharper than a double-edged sword, that you may stitch us together and knit us up and make us whole. Oh, lay your hand upon us and remind us that we have nothing to fear. You, O oh Lord, are the first and the last. Thank you for even a glimpse of this glory. And keep us by your faithfulness and perseverance until that day when we see it with our own eyes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.